Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Student loan debt is an issue that's important to a, to a lot of Weeds listeners, to a lot of people I know. It's like a, a lot of pe- folks are struggling with personally. So I was really excited to sit down with Catherine Lucas McKay. She is an expert at the Aspen Institute. She's been tasked with studying the question of student debt and its consequences uh, for the past couple of years now. We had a really fascinating conversation about all of this. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Before we get to it, I just want to let you know we're shaking up the schedule a little bit. Instead of a Friday episode, uh, me and Ezra Klein are going to do a post-debate episode that should be out on Wednesday. My guest today, Catherine Lucas McKay, is a program manager at the Financial Stability Program at the Aspen Institute. That's a mouthful, uh, but she has been working on student loans, uh, which is not something we've uh, had the chance to talk about here, but I know is of interest to a lot of people. So really glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad to be here, both as a person who's passionate about the topic and as a passionate Weeds fan. There you go. So- you know, I, I think about this. I, I sometimes feel like this is a topic on which I, I show my age. Uh, and, you know, I think about I graduated college in, in 2003. You know, most people who I was graduating with had some student loans. And, you know, I think, like, wished we didn't have them. Uh, no, nobody likes to be in debt. But, you know, it was a good school. We got jobs afterwards, um, probably jobs that were, like, better paying than people who hadn't gone to college, like that was part of the reason. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, pay the loans. I mean, again, maybe wish you didn't have to, but like, it's fine. And we're a cohort of people who are like better off than most people, than people who haven't gone to college. And so isn't that like, just like the system working as intended, like you you go into debt, you go to school, but then the school is valuable, and so you pay it back. When the system works that way for people, that's great. It increasingly doesn't, and mm-hmm. increasingly we don't see uh, financial policies keeping up with the reality of costs. Every year since you were born, mm-hmm. college costs have gone up faster than inflation, uh, which means every year for a few years more than I've been alive mm-hmm. and far longer than tomorrow's first years. Um, and then in addition to that, tomorrow's first year students look so different than you and your colleagues uh, or classmates back then. Um, you know, college students now tend to be 
older than hmm. uh, 18 when they start or older than 18 when they go back. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of giving it a start, needing to take some time off, finishing later. It takes, uh, on average, six years, not four, to graduate. So that's two additional years of borrowing that most people aren't fully factoring in. Most uh, people who have not been through this recently, mm -hmm. uh, when they're thinking about the costs, um, there's a lot of working parents. And now you have kids going to school whose parents haven't paid off their loans. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the system is working really well mm -hmm. in that you know, you have 70% of kids who graduate high school enrolling in some sort of higher ed within a year. That's great. That's what we want for a productive, highly educated, you know, decently earning population. Right. But we still haven't really moved the needle on how many of those kids finish. Mm -hmm. And the majority come out with debt. So, the, I mean, the finishing distinction yeah. is important, right? Because it's you have sort of, I, I mean, I, I take the, the point you're making, right? There's like a, a traditional vision, right, of like you enroll in school right after you graduate high school. You finish in four years um, and, you know, off to the races. And then there's a much bigger pool right. of, of people who are attending school right now. And, and a lot of the people who attend school don't actually graduate. And in that case, you've gone into debt. Like going into debt to get a college degree is valuable, but going into debt to not get a college degree like really isn't. Yeah. So you've talked mostly about the income benefits. Mm -hmm. There's been really interesting research out of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis looking at the overtime returns to income on mm -hmm. your college education have stayed strong. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, uh, flattening out a bit compared to the massive growth from the 70s onward. Returns to wealth aren't there. Hmm. So there's there's kind of this uh, mismatch between the fullness of what people's expectations of going to college is going to do for their life. Mm -hmm. And then, sure, they do earn more, but it's not quite getting them to that, like, security part. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. interesting, right? Because, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, in, in business terms, right, I mean, this is what you think of. If you say, well – this investment, like, it really pays off and you just talk about the revenue that you generate, right? right? That's not that's not right. right. Like you you yeah. want to talk about, okay, like, on net, has this made you better better off, right? That's more like the wealth metric. Right. And so, and is that because of the loans that essentially the higher income is now eaten away by servicing the debt? So I don't, I actually want to go back a little bit to mm -hmm. the non-completers mm -hmm. um, since, uh, you know, the... That is a big part of it. Sure. But sure, there is that large group of uh, students who don't finish. And if you're looking at, you know, if we had to help only one group, they are for sure both the easiest group to help mm -hmm. and the ones most in need. Why are they easiest to help? Because they don't have a huge amount of debt. Uh, uh, the median amount of debt for people who didn't complete is right around $10,000. Okay. The median amount of debt overall for everyone who has student loan debt is $19,000. Okay. So. So, okay. So so the non-completers are both less indebted, but also more burdened. Yes, exactly. By debt. Mm -hmm. uh, so that winds up being a sort of really compelling value proposition. Right. Right. Yeah. You're delivering a lot of help for, for relatively little money. Right. So, yeah, they are the most likely to default. They are the most likely not to see any wage gains based on having gotten higher education, but they do come out with these bills. Mm. There's nothing you can do about those bills because, mm -hmm. of course, you can't get rid of it in bankruptcy. So, And the high default rate is also relevant, right? Because 
like in most cases, it's the federal government that's on the oh, yeah. on the hook for these yes. loans, right? So, yeah. so forgiving a pool of loans that's relatively likely to default is cheap. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. But it, it like it gets the hypothetical defaulters out of the painful process mm-hmm. of like going all the way down the road to default. Exactly. But it doesn't actually have the fiscal cost. It might the, the face value might right. look like because we're also paying to administer it the whole time. We're paying someone to say, Oh, hey, they didn't pay their bill and someone else to call them and say you didn't pay your bill mm-hmm. and just do that over and over for as many years as it takes. Yeah. So what's the the history of this this bankruptcy point, right? Because like regular debts, I mean, it it happens. Pe- right. People people get into debt, they file for bankruptcy. It's not the funnest thing in the world. It's going to make it hard to get a car loan, you know, next year if if you file for bankruptcy. Uh, but you can do it and and move on with your life. Uh, so why not student loans? There are actually decent reasons there. You know, to just to be fair, mm-hmm. um, before student loans became such a central component of how people would be able to go to college, mm-hmm. they were there mostly for people whose families couldn't afford to send them or, you know, people who were choosing to go to a more expensive school than mm-hmm. the cheapest option they could mm-hmm. and needed some help. And in those situations, you So that's have, like you could have gone to like your state school. Right. But you wanted to go to a private school right. that cost more. Exactly. And so you, you needed – you know, I mean it's up to you. Right. So you take some loans and do So the argument when we tried as a policy matter to get lots more people into higher education was, well, private lenders aren't going to expand this market – for unsecured loans Mm -hmm. that they're not really allowed to do too much like traditional risk weighting and underwriting on. Mm -hmm. The point is broad access. Mm -hmm. So they basically made an argument that's not, you know, completely out of the realm of basic economics, that the moral hazard there was real and that it would be too easy for people to get an education, not get a job purposely, declare bankruptcy, have their loans wiped away, and then go on with their education and their merry life and mm-hmm. duck out on the debt. Okay, so let's 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 walk through some of this, this right. these banking technicalities, right? right? Um, in case people don't know, right? So so a secured loan, right, like like classic secured loan is a mortgage. Right. right? So the bank lends you money to buy the house and they are gonna ask you to put money down right. to show that you have some confidence that the house is worth what you're paying for it. And then we'll also ask you for a, an official uh, appraisement right. of the house. And the idea is that if you never repay back a dime of that loan, they get the house, Mm -hmm. right? So credit for something like that is available on pretty generous terms in the world, right? The other end of that is like you just show up somewhere and you're like, hey, give me a thousand bucks, right? Right? And that's that's like a hard sell. Right. So normally a bank is only going to want to make an unsecured loan to people who it has uh, detailed information about that gives them reason to believe you are going to repay it. Right. And that typically means like in je- like you have a, to have a lot of money. Right. Income, right? positive cash flow, things that 18-year-olds about to be full-time students don't have or that 24-year-old working parents trying to get their AA don't have. Right. So especially when we're talking about the whole point is we, well, we want to broaden access to higher education to people who are more economically marginal. Like unsecured loans are not going to get that done. Not right. in the private market. Exactly. Right. So, so that's like how all this policy comes in. And so 
Restricting access to bankruptcy is part of trying to make this a business people would want to get into. Right. And that happened in the mid-70s, mm-hmm. which was right al- along the time where we were pushing hard to make a more productive, more prosperous workforce through higher ed. Mm-hmm. Then you had some changes in the 80s that added more mm-hmm. uh, lenders to the groups that um, – could hang on to those loans forever, hmm. uh, including nonprofit lenders. Hmm. So that's when you started getting private sector players structured as nonprofits, similar to the way that we do in like the healthcare sector, mm-hmm. um, so that they too could make loans that the borrower had no recourse on. Mm-hmm. And then in bankruptcy reform in 2005, they just – everything now is non-dischargeable. You mm-hmm. can't get rid of your loans if they're student loans no matter what. Right. And so, the, and then in 2009, 10, mm-hmm. the federal government directly takes over right. most of this lending, right? Because previously, it just was still never really a market that was appealing right. to banks. So the federal government was doing a lot of guarantees, right? There's like a lot of stuff going in because socially, we, we wanted people to be able to buy education that, that was beyond their families current means. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not a great – it's fundamentally unsecured. You can't you can't repossess somebody's college degree right. and sell it to somebody else. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so you you get a thing of value from going to school, but the lender can't can't seize it. Right. So so the government was always involved and then just took it over directly because I think um, that's like the most cost effective way to to run a loan guarantee. Right. Yeah. I remember so I graduated in 2006. Uh, which was as the loan burden started mm-hmm. creeping up quite a bit more than mm-hmm. uh, just a couple years before. And um, it was, from my perspective, like such an obviously good step to take in terms of the nightmares that my friends and I in school had mm-hmm. with, you know, you were getting, if you weren't getting a direct Stafford subsidized loan from the government, you had to deal with some sort of middleman right. financial institution. And it was a pain. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it was a very similar situation to uh, guaranteed loan programs during the housing bubble mm-hmm. in that the government had all this risk. There wasn't enough oversight of what was happening with the loans. And as a result, borrowers ended up in just bad situations that should have been avoided. Right. Because it becomes very much just in the lender's interest, right, in, in that kind of like one-sided guarantee to be like, basically, I just want to talk people into borrowing right. as much money as possible. Right. Because you're not carrying any real credit risk. Right. So you're just looking for people who meet the technical program qualifications and then wh- whatever I wh- – what more can I do for you? Exactly. Right. Um. So th- at the time, as a young graduate in an increasingly tough workforce with friends who were still coming out, like this seemed like a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phrase unintended consequences is just too small for what happened after that. So what happened? Um, When you implemented both just federalized basically almost everything Mm -hmm. and uh, very near that point in time implemented income-driven repayment. Mm -hmm. So now you have a situation where The Department of Education rapidly becomes the largest bank in America. Mm -hmm. It was not designed for that. Mm -hmm. And there was not really like an investment in the department's competencies to run the largest bank in Mm -hmm. America. So you have a lot of administrative problems just flowing straight from that. 
Um, you also have a situation where schools are able to charge more and more and more because the the loans that are available to people, you can borrow up to fifty seven and a half thousand as mm-hmm. an undergrad just from straight federal loans. Right. So as long as schools are structuring their tuition and fees and their like their basic aid packages to accommodate that, they can charge as much as they want. Right. So you have no real measure of price control. There's not any quality control. Mm-hmm. So someone can borrow the same amount to go to, you know, University of Virginia, like a premier public school, mm-hmm. or to the terrible failing private for-profit college that also surely has a storefront in mm-hmm. uh, Charlottesville. Right, right. So, I mean, you essentially, you you created a situation where there was a big implicit, they, 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 a lot of money was put on the table, mm-hmm. right? Within very little restriction as to like who can who can grab the money right. or under what terms, as long as you can talk some student into uh, right. assuming the intermediate risk, right? So, so well, the, it's the forever risk if you think about it in terms of never being able to discharge those loans, right? Right, but I mean, it's the the federal government is ultimately guaranteeing the loan, right? Otherwise, like otherwise, it wouldn't or the there there. The the federal government is holding a piece of default risk. Oh yes. Right. That would not function in mm-hmm. a in a private lending market. Right. Um, but yes, then like the students can't get rid of it and schools could just proliferate, right? I mean, there was this I, I don't know, potentially utopian idea about market competition or something in higher education. But like we know, like everybody knows, right? There has been no like disruptive entrant. Right. Into American higher education, right? Like University of Virginia is like still a really good school, yep. right? And it's like all the schools you would have named 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, let's take a break and, and then let's talk about like what what is problematic about this. All right. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions. Best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So you can tell sort of like sad stories about individuals, but like what what do we know like from a macro perspective? Like like what's the problem with a lot of people now having a lot of student debt? So there's a couple of problems. One, you have this massive amount of economic suffering mm-hmm. that affects people really deeply. Mm-hmm. And here you're talking about the 11% of uh, loans that are in default. I think it's slightly less than 11% of people actually hold those loans in default. And then the people who, you know, once a year pretty regularly or even a little more often can't make a payment Mm -hmm. and get behind and then struggle to catch up. Mm -hmm. So we know that student loan debt for some unknown reason has a more stressful impact on borrowers who feel like they're struggling with it. Hmm. Um, and that's like, that's interesting. I think the forever aspect of those loans has something to do with it. So and, you mean like psychological yes, stress? Yeah. But then psychological stress leads to health problems hmm. that are very real. And it leads to households where parents and children have more struggles you know, among just like managing a family mm-hmm. and having a happy household and a family that is ready to succeed. Right. And, you know, I, from my position as someone who researches household financial security, I think that's a much more serious problem than people recognize. Uh-huh. So there's that. You have this right. economic suffering that has real consequences for the families that experience it, mm-hmm. not just the borrowers. Then you have all these people who are not buying houses not saving for retirement. Mm -hmm. When you have Jerome Powell testifying before Congress that he is worried about student loans, Mm -hmm. that's what he's worried about. He is worried about not a foreclosure crisis, but decades of real drag on the economy, Mm -hmm. uh, reduced demand that could have been turned into long-term wealth. So, I mean, this is is reduced demand how I, I guess the question is like, is there something special happening, or is it just that well, when you're making loan payments, you're not, you know, you have less income left to to, to buy something else, right? Like it's equivalent to, um, I don't know, people having slightly lower incomes, right? There's there's less right. disposable consumption, or is there something like special about the about the debt dynamic? So there is a lot around the psychology of debt mm-hmm. that when you look at just uh, behavioral research in economics is very interesting. Mm-hmm. The way that people think about being in debt and balancing their needs for savings and liquidity mm-hmm. and balancing their long-term needs, it's just tough. There's a lot of emotional and psychological pressure there. So mm-hmm. that's that's one thing. But then the other is that, it, you know, the, the crowding out effect is real. If you are struggling to put savings away because mm-hmm. you're paying $150 to $300 a month, which is in the, like, relatively typical range for right. payments um, – not into an emergency fund, mm-hmm. not into a home uh, down payment fund, mm-hmm. not even into uh, your retirement, that has compounding effects, just like it could have compounding benefits. Right. And that is something that I think we all should be thinking about and taking seriously. Yeah, I mean, this is probably, it's a little hard to measure, right? Because in a in a sort of like um, really simple, right, like macroeconomic model, where you're going to say, 
money that goes to paying down student loan balances, like that is household savings. Mm, yes. Well. Right? Well, I mean, because it is, right? Like if, if you're doing the uh, accounting identities, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, for, for listeners at home, if you love accounting identities, right? I mean, everything is either household consumption or it's taxes or it's saving, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you may think, right, it's like paying a credit card bill is not saving. Uh, paying your student loan is not, quote unquote, saving. That's not what people mean when right. they say I'm saving for the future. Right. But like in the the economic, you know, scales, like that's that's what that's saving, right? right? But people who are, quote unquote, saving by paying off old student loans are not um, accumulating financial resilience. Exactly. Right. And yeah, financial resilience is a great way to put it. Um, You see, when you look even just at graduates Mm -hmm. who have student loans versus don't have student loans, uh, you see lower levels of liquidity, Mm -hmm. which is exactly that. You see a lot of things that then flow from that, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, right down the line. So liquidity is like money in the bank. Right. That's like your car breaks down, you need a car to get to work. Right. If you have money, you just get your car fixed. Right. And it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you can be down a whole spiral of potential problems with payday loans or losing jobs. and and There's another piece to this, though, that's really important, and that's that – if you are saving by paying down the costs of earlier consumption of education, mm-hmm. you should finish paying it down. Right. And people just spin their wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is interest assessed on your student loans while you are in school, unless right. you have a subsidized loan, and most of them aren't. It accrues during the six-month grace period before you start paying. Mm -hmm. So by the time you start paying your loans, you owe thousands more than you borrowed. Mm. And with income-driven repayment, the idea is to, like, reduce the short-term stress of your payments. Mm -hmm. But the impact is that people who make a good living Mm -hmm. and borrow to get there Mm -hmm. are still paying less each month than they are being charged in interest. Mm. And this is not just a problem for your typical four-year grad from an okay enough public school Mm -hmm. who has a pretty good job. This is every teacher I know, Mm -hmm. including my own wife. She has never made a late payment. She graduated with her master's in 2012, Mm -hmm. and she owes more today. And Every teacher I know is in that situation. I know a lot of educators because it's my whole family. Sure. Um, And that's not success. Right. And it's also not what you would want from the perspective of being able to make an investment in yourself, pay it down. Most people don't want to pay their student loans for 20 years. Right. If it were feasible, they'd just get it over with. Right. But here we are. And the structure of of this kind of lending is that it also operates as a kind of now steep marginal tax increase on on younger people, right? Right. Because the you know so you you try to like get a promotion, you get a raise, but then your payment is going to go exactly up yep. as well, right? So it's I mean it's I guess better than totally bankrupting people in the first couple years of of their life, right? But it creates a situation that really hangs. Over you, it's 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 hard to get out from under because if you start making more money, like your payments will also increase. Right, right. Um, and so, I mean, is this responsible for 
uh, some things we see in terms of um, younger people seem less likely to own any stocks, less likely to buy houses. I mean, do you attribute that fundamentally There's to debate student about life? it? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the most rigorous research approaches have not consistently found strong effects. Mm-hmm. But when you ask people, mm-hmm. are you know, what are your financial goals? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. What are you not doing that you wish you could and why? Mm-hmm. Um, which... Uh, there's actually quite a bit of survey data out there on that from the private sector because mm-hmm. it helps them design products and market them better. Sure. Um, when you when you take a look at that, people say, I want to be saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. I want to buy a house. I want to start a business. Mm-hmm. But these payments are holding me back. Right. And so – we should mention here, because I, I think we've sort of uh, implicitly talked a lot about college, um, but people take student loans for, for graduate school they do. as well. And I mean, some people I've talked to have said uh, they think this is a – well, I, this came up because a couple candidates paired debt relief plans with essentially like free college plans. Mm-hmm. Um, but the debt that would be relieved in those plans includes – all kinds of graduate schools that they weren't contemplating any forward-looking policy changes on. Right. And I think it's so it's important for people to understand that, right? Like how much of this debt is from beyond college. Right. And so one one thing I do also want to say with that is that it's really important. I want to see us do big, bold things mm-hmm. to deal with this problem that is hanging over two entire generations and starting to hang over a third. Mm-hmm. It has to be paired with big, bold things to deal with why we got here. Right. Um, you know, just helping the 45 million people who are dealing with student loans today will do nothing to solve the next 20 years worth of problems. We have to do both. So in in, in that way, I think there's something really great about the way that candidates have started linking those two things as if they are a single package deal. Right. I think we should be thinking that way. Um, I would also – say, sorry, let's go back to the core of that question that I evaded. <laughs> so yes, uh, a decent amount of the debt out there is graduate school debt. People borrow more to go to grad school uh, you know, per year. That is a topic of debate that, to be honest, I find the debate pretty frustrating Okay, uh, because it tends to be, should we or should we not include people who went to grad school in our reform plans, mm-hmm. our relief plans? And the feeling tends to be, no, these are the most highly educated, most likely to be successful people. Right. So let's just deal with the undergraduate debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would say to that is teachers, mm-hmm. social workers. We have a lot of poorly paid, highly educated workers who had to get masters. And their situations are – Pretty similar to that of many people with just undergrad debt who are spinning their wheels in repayment. Right. What seems important to me about that is, as you were saying, right, it's you need to integrate both the sort of backward-looking and forward-looking aspects of this. And I haven't seen many people offering, like, a forward-looking answer on the graduate school piece, right? So it's like, it's... If if teachers are going into debt to get master's degrees that then do not have large income payoffs, like we need to ask some questions about, right, like are those programs so valuable that we should be paying for people 
for qualified teachers to go get those M.Ed. degrees for free because we need a teaching workforce? Or are those programs actually not that valuable? They're just a arbitrary statutory requirement mm. that we should get. I mean, wh- whatever it is, yeah. right? But what we don't want to do is like every 30 years have like a random teacher debt jubilee. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like we need a, a teacher workforce development solution that makes sense. Right. And so I think – one thing that's interesting with the the debt-free college plans mm-hmm. is some of them are really closely tied to federal strings around state investments in their public education mm-hmm, systems. Mm-hmm. And those are things that will not just strengthen undergraduate programs and help control costs mm-hmm. there. Those are things that will strengthen whole university systems right. and help control costs there. So I think that's something that people are starting to think about. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's enough in the discussion. Right. Um, you know, I, I think with grad school, you are allowed to, your borrowing limit is a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus loans are essentially unlimited. Mm-hmm. So you have that. That's a plus loan. Oh, uh, <laughs> it is a loan that is on top of or plus uh, your basic package of loans. Mm -hmm. So you get uh, Stafford loans primarily for your grad school and for your undergrad. If that doesn't cover everything for an undergraduate, a parent can take out a loan for the rest Mm -hmm. that's not limited and has fewer protections and benefits Mm -hmm. called a parent plus loan. Those are now available to grad students as well. So if you are taking out your maximum of $20,000, uh, $500 in Stafford, and you need additional funding on top of that, you get a plus loan. So, I mean, it just seems like, for graduate school at least, it seems like common sense that you would want to distinguish between kinds of programs, mm-hmm. right? That if there's a, you hear about a guy who's like, oh, he's got such high student loans, but like actually he just graduated from Yale Law School mm-hmm. and he's like an associate at a white shoe law firm. Right. I'm like, that's not that sympathetic. Right. right? No, it's not. And, and, and not in a highly idiosyncratic way, but just like very specifically, like people go to law school and get a certain kind of job. People get master's of social work degrees and they get a different kind of job, right? right? Like those are highly differentiated programs that we probably want to think about in different ways. Whereas right. undergrad, I mean, obviously different undergrad schools are different, but we've organized uh, undergraduate education to be a little bit of a, like a, like a hazy mess. Mm. Um, but like the grad programs, like <laughs> they gain you entry into specific professions and sure. we should probably think about the financing of that right, in a right. specific way. I think – so it's interesting. You saw NYU's medical school declare mm-hmm. that they are going tuition-free. Mm-hmm. And they're like an amazingly great medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, for them, they're trying to like think about how do you change that model about right. you know wanting their extremely well-trained, highly qualified doctors not to all go become – orthopedic surgeons. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is an interesting thing that institutions with wealth in high-earning industries can experiment with. Right. Um, I think that would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that even when you're looking at doctors, not all of them are going to NYU. Right. Not all lawyers are going to Yale. Mm-hmm. So when you think about all of these things, you should be thinking about like who is the typical mm-hmm. and organizing around that. Right. Uh, I think one way that you start to see people focus in on how do you kind of separate out the people who really could afford to pay for their higher ed, mm-hmm. particularly their grad school, is around how much you might forgive if you're talking about loan forgiveness. Sure. Um, because people who go to grad school for those highest earning positions under our current system are borrowing $300,000 sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
paying it down in their first five years, everything is fine for mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. But that's just to say, right, it's like looking at the debt level can in some ways be less informative. Right. Right. You can but- definitely do more of like a debt to projected income. Mm-hmm, right. uh, and that's actually what uh, people have tried to do with thinking about um, limiting where dollars can go mm-hmm. to institutions is saying like, how much debt do your students come out with and how much do they earn in their first three years in the workforce? Right. Ultimately, that has not yet been like fully implemented or enforced. There's a lot of uh, reticence to make those pieces of data public among mm-hmm. a very large body of schools. Right. But that is an approach that really could help figure out like who needs the assistance once they have that really elite level of education. So this was in the in the Obama years, this was the, uh, what do they call it? Gainful... Gainful employment rule, yeah. Rule, right. And so they were trying to say that you were going to have to document, right, basically Mm -hmm. as a school, that your graduates were making A decent amount of money, right. That they were making an amount of money that was commensurate to the tuition you were charging. Right. Right. And that would be – that's like a more traditional financial underwriting model. Basically, right? right? It's right. like if if the federal government is a bank and it is investing in human capital, then it's asking – it's essentially treating the schools as the borrowers mm-hmm. rather than the students. Right. And is, because the schools presumably have expertise mm-hmm. in their field and is then asking them to say, prove to us, right, that the investment in your human capital factory – actually pays off. Right. And then we will give you the money. Right. Um, obviously, the schools didn't, didn't love didn't that like idea. Didn't like it. <laughs> Did not like it. Um, but like, well, I mean, was was that like a sound approach? I think so. I do think so. I think that there's nothing wrong with thinking about uh, the fact that we used to not rely so much on loans, but mm-hmm. have a lot more requirements around what adequate investment in education looked like. Mm -hmm. We didn't have this for-profit sector then. Leaving that aside, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was an expectation that if federal grants were flowing to public universities, that they were flowing to universities that were, in fact, investing in their faculties, Mm -hmm. in their facilities, in their students. Mm -hmm. And you so slowly have had an erosion both of what states do and what the expectations for states among federal and among households actually are. I don't think many families who have a high school student today expect their state to fully cover the costs of their child's college because we just stopped doing that, Um, which was a choice. Right. All right. Let's take a break and then let's, let's talk about solutions. All right. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year 
at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So what do we do? Okay. Well, (laughs) again, sitting in, you know, the seat of the person who says the most important thing here is that households, families are doing okay financially. Mm -hmm. And if we get that in order, society and our economy will thrive. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we were studying what to do about the problem, we had kind of three guiding principles. One is that, and we didn't even talk about this that much, but student loans have exploded the racial wealth gap. Right. Like really in a way that just makes you want to cry because it was supposed to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And just we asked people to pay more for Mm -hmm. the same degree, knowing that they would go into a labor market where they were discriminated against by the color of their skin and would earn less. Right. And of course, the outcomes of that have not been good. Right. Um, They've been very bad. Student loans explain roughly 20% of the black-white wealth gap now. Mm-hmm. So this is – so African-American college graduates earn much less money than white college graduates, mm-hmm. right? And so in an unconstrained marketplace, uh, the banker would say, I'm going to be less willing to lend to the African-American applicant, right. right? Now, obviously, in the real world, we would say that is itself that is discriminatory, morally wrong, right? so we're not going and, to And you have it. this all the time. I mean, I talk to people in, in fintech, and they're always coming up with, uh, like, algorithms. And then, like, the question I always ask them is, like, well, are you are you just proxying to, to find black people and not lend them money? And, like, they always are. Um, and it's because if there is discrimination in the labor market, then it's, like, technically correct to introduce discrimination into the lending market. If it's fully privatized and you don't have social values around equity. Exactly. But so then then we say, no, okay, that's not an acceptable outcome right. for like really obvious reasons. Right. But if you don't address the inequity that exists in the labor market, you are actually creating this very disparate debt situation. Right. Right, because the 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 degree is not as valuable. I hate to put it like that, but it's true. It's not because a degree is a signal to employers about who you are and how much you're worth as much as it is an education. And the cold hard fact is that signal somehow means a lot less to employers based on your race. And so that is very different, right? I mean, if, right. if the higher education was fully funded, right, the discrimination would still exist, which is bad and could you could maybe do something about it. But the education would be of positive value exactly. to everybody who got it, yep. right? But the loan actually transforms it right. so that you can wind up being like underwater exactly. on college Exactly. And that's degree. what you see. You see – so there's actually been two really interesting recent reports, one from Demos, which is a very progressive think tank, looking at what happens 12 years after you start repaying. Mm-hmm. Best case scenario, if you are a white man, 12 years in, you've paid off 55% of your balance. Mm-hmm. That's – not success. No. Worst case scenario, if you are a black woman, you owe more 12 years later than when you started. There was a report that was out just last week from a an academic research center at Brandeis that found that uh, once you get to 20 years, mm-hmm. white borrowers have paid off 95% of their balances. Okay. 
Black borrowers have 95% of their balances. And this is one of those situations where an academic was like, no, 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 Uh I must have done something wrong. Um, And ultimately, no, that's what their data told them. And whoa. So solving for that to get back to solutions. So so a debt forgiveness program needs to, from my perspective Mm -hmm. and my program's perspective, needs to do something to roll back the damage that was done Mm -hmm. and create a greater level or at least less of a bad disparity. Mm -hmm. So that's one of our guiding stars. Another is that it has to be easier for people to make their payments in the now because the financial suffering associated with that and the opportunity costs are very high. Mm -hmm. And then in the long run, people should be paying less on student loans, Mm -hmm. whether that's from borrowing less Mm -hmm. on the side of fully funding education or whether it's on the side of maybe just getting rid of some loans. Right. So from a, you know, current payments perspective, I mean, do you think is the right thing to do to basically just forgive some quantity of this debt? I mean, maybe, maybe limit it in some way, but basically to say, like, we need to, I mean, the federal government's borrowing costs right now are very low. It would not be actually that financially disadvantageous to just write off a bunch of student debt. It would not, particularly given that the Department of Education and the Treasury are no longer able to say, this is what we think it will cost in the long term. Right. So at least now we know what it will cost if we say we're going to write off a bunch of these loans. Mm-hmm. The future is unknown. Right. Um, and certainly there will just be more and more accumulating that's not collectible. Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh, I do think that it's important to say we need to just get rid of some of this and start with that premise. Mm-hmm. Um Assuming that we're doing something equally important and big on the side of how education is financed in the first place. You can do that in a lot of ways. And I think what's interesting is you have a broad cross-section of experts, policymakers, regular people thinking about the student loans that they and people in their lives have who are, you know, supportive of different ways of doing it Mm -hmm. that all kind of come down to – some degree, more or less, of reducing those burdens. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so one thing that Democrats and Republicans actually agree on is it would not be that hard for Congress to fix income-driven repayment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would not necessarily, like, just knock off balances, but it would prevent people from defaulting, Mm -hmm. and your costs increase a lot when you default. Right. And it would prevent people from um, paying more right now than they have to. So what does fixing mean in this context? (laughs) So income-driven repayment currently has 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. different flavors. Mm -hmm. Um, We could probably do with, like, two Okay. (laughs) Uh, And that's just emerged legislatively over time, um, somewhat through uh, administrative rulemaking. But during different periods, you know, there's one that the acronym is repay and another one where it was it used to be pay. Right. (laughs) You know, that's that's where we're at. (laughs) So there's that. It's confusing. People don't know what's the most advantageous thing to do. You have to resubmit your paperwork Mm -hmm. every year, every year. And, you know, Department of Ed has the information, your servicer has the information, the IRS has the information. That could be automated. Mm -hmm. You could only have to recertify every couple of years to make sure that what the government 
knows from mm-hmm. all of its other data sources is still correct. Right. So the basic point yeah. is that the IRS knows how much money everybody is making. Right. And does not really need to do secondary verification right. of, of people's incomes. Exactly. Um, and the whole thing administratively, I mean, I, I remember talking to uh, people at uh, Treasury midway through the Obama years, and they were very upset that this whole program had been handed over to the Department of Education, which in their opinion didn't know anything about loan servicing. I mean, they were saying they shouldn't even do it at, at Treasury, but they they wanted like HUD to do it. Like somebody that, that, that like Congress is thinking about this was like, oh, this is an education issue. So we give it to the education people. Right. But like it's a financial management issue and you have to give it to somebody who knows something about that. Exactly. Right. What do we do about the the phenomenon? Right. I mean, it's like we are now several generations into this idea of well, it's an investment in the future, so people should get some loans. And it seems like everyone is actually really unhappy with the outcome, that like conservatives feel like we've created this like bloated higher education sector. Progressives Conservatives are, and progressive would agree on that too. It's right. one of those few places. Progressives feel bad about people having all this debt. There's like all this like – I feel like everyone feels very angry about higher education financing. They should. Right now. And so, like, but, like, what could we do? Uh, so on the side of all of these unhappy borrowers mm-hmm. and how you just, like, get rid of some of this, mm-hmm. uh, conservative uh, folks who have looked at this really carefully have said, hey, what if we just stopped allowing negative amortization to happen? Okay. You just freeze at whatever interest would be applied on the principal and that's it. Okay. Not on your, you know, uh, recapitalized principal every year. Okay. Or get rid of interest altogether and charge one origination fee up front. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that those are ideas that are sensible and relatively efficient. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, like if that's all we could get, mm-hmm. okay. That would be like a very heavily subsidized kind of loan, basically. Right. Like, like very cheap debt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you could just get rid of all of that. Uh, you know, underwater portion of people's loans right now. And that's nice and simple. Mm -hmm. Um, We can tell how much of someone's balance comes from that and just forgive it and don't tax it. Okay. So that's like the conservative think tanker. So that would be like a a minimal, like a minimal viable kind of help. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, once you start looking at what is being discussed in uh, you know, more liberal and mm-hmm. progressive and even, you know, moderate and centrist spaces. Um, it's really a question of who do you target and how much are you willing to forgive or cancel? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at the presidential proposals, you see a lot of that who do you target question sure. playing out. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Sanders who's like, nah, don't right. target don't anyone. Target. Right. <laughs> Just like healthcare, this is a public good, mm-hmm. shouldn't be there, get mm-hmm. rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, You have uh, Senator Warren who's like, well, let's just exclude people who are earning a whole lot. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and her proposal to cancel up to 50,000 is based on the household, not the borrower. So that actually constrains it a little more. Um, And it's based on earning, I think, less than 100,000 a year. Um, And there's a a sliding scale. It's a very Mm -hmm. sensible policy. Uh, But then you get like Kamala Harris, who wants to target teachers, public servants, and then like certain other categories of people. 
Pete Buttigieg really wants to focus on public servants. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who uh, really want to focus on veterans. Right. All of those are important. Um, and there are also people who say, like, let's focus on disadvantaged racial groups. They're the ones who have been most harmed. Right. We need to figure out how to do that within the bounds of the law. Mm-hmm. But that's an important target group as well. Right. Um, those mean, policies are hard to implement. That is my number one comment on that. There's nothing wrong with saying let's make sure that the most assistance goes to the people who need it most. But when I kind of back out a set of strategies that could get to those three big goals that we have, first, I want things that could get us there. And mm-hmm. second, I want the most simple thing possible. Yeah, I mean, it's really worth saying the, the Obama administration tr- implemented a public service loan forgiveness program. Oh, right. And it's been a huge disaster. Yes. Because it's easy to say, like on a podcast, well, we should do student loan forgiveness for people in public service. But that requires an administrative definition. Yep. It requires a set of criteria through which you verify it. It requires a bunch of rules about, well, what happens if you don't, like, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And it has not, like, actually generated forgiveness of student loans no. for people in public service. No, I think we're up to a 5% forgiveness rate, up from 1% uh, right. when they started taking applications. This is like the boring part of government, but it yeah. but it does matter, right? Yeah. Whereas if you do, well, if you do like an income-targeted forgiveness, you will end up hitting like most of the public servants. Mm-hmm. By definition, mm-hmm. and any ones you don't hit would probably have uh, very high income spouses. And well, it's maybe yeah. not a big deal, um, but yeah. So, so, so simplicity mm-hmm. has a lot of value. That, to me personally, looking at policies that have worked in both uh, debt relief mm-hmm. and that have worked in education. Mm-hmm. Trying to target really specific populations is just hard because it requires them to come to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a that's a burden. Right. So, yes, if you want to look at, you know, more simplicity for the public service loan forgiveness program. First of all, I work in a non the last private sector job I had was like for TGI Fridays in uh-huh. 2001. Um my wife is a teacher. Mm-hmm. So if there were not a public service loan forgiveness program, I would have made some different choices. But sure. also we would just have no financial future. Right. And when I think about what's happening now, where I personally sit, that's terrifying. So I print out a bank statement for each of us every month highlighting our payment to Fed loan. Right. And I also copy and print out every single letter I get from Fed loan saying I have made no payments towards my personal forgiveness plan. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with that. There yeah, are yeah, some yeah. relatively easier administrative things, but I agree that if you're talking about that type of targeted program where it's not just government workers, but nonprofit workers as well, there's going to be hoops. Right. There's also faster forgiveness, and to some degree, additional hoops, faster forgiveness is a trade-off right. that you might be willing to make. Right. But if you're talking about the larger population, mm-hmm. I think that like the really interesting what's the best way to go question mm-hmm. in my mind is do you do it by income mm-hmm. or do you do it by, you know, everyone can have a fixed amount up to X. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see uh, Senator Warren kind of threading that needle both ways. Sure. Um, what I think is interesting is 
you know, we we like did some back of the envelope kind of calculations. Her plan would cost, I think it's one point two trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, you could forgive up to the median mm-hmm. uh, for half of that. Okay. Less than half of that. You could forgive up to 10,000, that number where people mm-hmm. are particularly likely to default, mm-hmm. and completely get rid of all of the debt for the most vulnerable people for less than $500 million. Okay. So Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, whoever is president, and they're like, all right, guys, like we're doing the trillion-dollar loan forgiveness program. And then Kristen Cinema calls you up, and she's like, all right. We're not going to do that, but I gotta, I, I, I gotta throw Bernie a bone, and we're gonna do it, do a debt forgiveness bill, but like we gotta, we gotta shrink it down, right? And w- would that be your recommendation that like basically you just like look at forgiving less than a hundred percent of the debt, and that that's a pretty good targeting system? That if I were making choices mm-hmm. for real for what to do in legislation, mm-hmm. that's how I would go. Right. Yeah. So it's like, if you know, we we can argue like how much money in aggregate should we invest in this idea right. versus other kinds of things. But like if you want to cut it down, just say we'll forgive 10000 instead of 20000 We'll forgive 20000 instead of 30000 Right. And that paradoxically, it's like the least indebted people – often have the biggest problem. Right. That's a good takeaway. (laughs) That is. I think, you know, this is a complex problem that's going to last generations, Mm -hmm. but it is solvable, and there's really great ideas out there to solve it. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I'm going to let you go with with that, but I do like to ask, uh, you know, is there like one one last question I I should have asked you here? What what did we miss? It's It's a big subject. I think if you missed anything, it would be there's a really fierce progressive debate over whether loan forgiveness is progressive or regressive. Yes. And I think I skipped that intentionally because oh, I did find you? it tedious. <laughs> but, but let's talk about it. So you know, it, it is kind of tedious in that like, how much does it matter? But in terms of building groundswell support, mm-hmm. I think it really does. The perception of that matters. Sure. And I understand the perspective of no, this is regressive because mm-hmm. we'll be delivering some windfalls to some people. Mm-hmm. Um I understand the argument that it's progressive because it does deliver the most assistance to the most in need. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that the real progressive argument here is that everyone will pay more Mm -hmm. if we do nothing. Mm -hmm. And doing anything, Mm -hmm. however small or however uh, structured in a way where, you know, it's not perfect for you. Mm is a step forward. So this is why the the broad economic impacts matter. Right. Right. This is about helping people, but it's not like just about helping people. It's about getting the whole life cycle economy. Right. It's about healthy societies. It's about communities where this isn't a burden on everyone so everyone's more able to thrive. Okay, fantastic. Um, Thank you so much, Catherine Lucas-McKay from the Aspen Institute. Uh, Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and to Malachi Brodus, who is the engineer on this episode. And The Weeds will return on Wednesday.